Heavenly Father, we hear these words from the Apostle Paul and we know them to be true. And yet their truth is so amazing that if we were to live in accordance with what is made known here, knowing that you have made us complete in Christ, that you have cut away the old nature, that you've made dead men alive, that you truly have canceled the record of debt that stands against us, and that you've set us free from our enemy, the devil. These truths, Father, if made known to us and lived out in our lives, would mean we as a people would live to your honor and glory. And so we ask that you be gracious with us to not only understand these teachings, but by the power of your Spirit, live in accordance with them. We do not want to be a people who merely hear the word and do not do it. We do not want to be a gathering that come here on Sunday to hear some preaching and pray a few prayers and not be radically transformed by the Spirit that resides in us. And so we, we ask you, we, we beg you, Father, to move mightily this hour by your Spirit that we might not be complacent Christians, but that we would see we are complete in Christ and we would live this day and every day you give us to magnify your majesty and your glory, to tell the world of Christ and to bring honor to the Holy Spirit that resides in us. Father, we're asking for this time to be a true time of holy worship. You are worthy of it. Be present this hour, I pray. Help me, a sinner saved by grace, preach your word. Help my brothers and sisters, sinners saved by grace, hear your word. We cannot do this on our own. Our flesh will hate these things, but your spirit will rejoice in us. And so we ask that you would do that great work in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome. If you have a Bible, please open up to Colossians chapter 2 if you are not there already. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. If you were listening to Kirk read that passage, I hope there was a sense of encouragement and excitement. These verses, they, they come together and you'll see why from verse 8 through 15. They need to be preached together, but almost every single verse is a sermon in and of itself. And so I'm going to try to use an economy of words. I'm, I'm going to ask you to be patient. I don't want to go really long today, but I also don't want to miss some of these jewels that are in here. Because if you hear what God has to say through Paul, by the time you get to verse 15, you should be so encouraged and so strengthened by what Christ has said here that you will leave here differently, you will eat lunch differently, and you'll go to work differently tomorrow morning. Um, I, I want that for us. I want us to be changed this hour. Our God is a, a God who transforms His people. So let's do that. Let's, let's jump into this and see if we can't, by God's grace, hear the Holy Spirit speak to us in ways that, that give us understanding and encouragement. We have, we've been moving through verses where the Apostle Paul has established the majesty and the magnitude of this preeminent one, this firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of all creation. 
And then we heard last week that he's agonizing. He struggled in his ministry through the proclamation of the gospel and through prayer to have God's people know Christ. You could say the entire book of Colossians is about Paul wanting his people to know Christ. You can say that's pretty much the entire Bible is that we might know Christ. And he says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. That is a, that's a term that, that means to plunder or to, to take hostage, especially during wartime. That's going to resonate well with us when we get to verse 15. Most of you know this. When, when Satan was defeated at the cross of Christ, it has become his mission to crush the bride, to do everything that he can to cause God's children to stumble. And the best way that he does that is to bombard us with philosophies. Look, look at verse 1. Philosophies and empty deceit, human traditions according to the elementary spirits of this world. These are concoctions and conclusions invented by men. Foolishness, foolish teachings, worldly teachings conjured up, listen, for the sole purpose of causing God's little ones to stumble. All the heresy, all the false teachings, all the lies, students, that you hear from your instructors perpetuated in your classrooms, the purpose, which they probably do not know, is to cause you to stumble. Human philosophies we've seen, Jewish legalism, pagan mysticism, religious asceticism, all vying for the hearts and minds of God's church. And so Paul says here, do not be taken captive. Don't fall into this trap. And then he tells us why. He says, you're already complete. Don't be fooled. You're already whole. So amazing. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, he calls these false teachers peddlers of weak and worthless teachings, incapable of enriching you because you are infinitely rich already in Christ. They have nothing to add to your testimony. They have nothing to add to the word of God. They have nothing to add to Christ or the gospel. And so he, he establishes this imperative. Do not be taken captive because you are complete. And then he does four amazing things here. He, we, he tells us two things that God has done in us to make us complete. And two things he's done for us to make us complete. And as I said at the beginning, each one is worthy of a sermon. Maybe we'll come back and we'll do that later. I don't know. He wants us to know these truths that we won't be taken captive. He wants us to know these truths that we might know that God and his church, we are invincible to Satan and his techniques and his false teachings. And by God's grace, if you can see that today, it'll compel you to fight hard the fight of Christ. That you will strive not to be taken captive by all the lies and all the false teachings that swirl around us every day. So let's do that this morning. Let's look at four things. Number one, your completeness in Christ. Number two, how God worked in you to make you complete. Number three, the work that God did for you to make you complete. And then we will look very briefly at what it means to live a completed life. All right? Our completeness in Christ, God's work in us, God's work for us, and living completed lives. Are you ready? All right, let's go then. Verse 8. He says, do not be taken captive. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles, spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 9, 
For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Two mind-blowing proclamations made in verse 9 and verse 10. One about Christ and one about his people. He says of Christ, he repeats what he's already established, that this is Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. In the incarnate Jesus Christ, God fully dwelt. The whole sum, now listen, the whole sum and substance of God's infinite attributes found their place in the body of Jesus Christ. 100% God, man. He's already told us in chapter 1. That Jesus, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. He told us in chapter 1, verse 19, that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was what? Was pleased to dwell. That means his omniscience, God's omnipotence, God's omnipresence, his immutability, his eternality, all resided perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is God. This was understood by the Colossians. This was not new to them. They knew this, and it's why they put their faith in Christ to save them. But Paul reiterates it again here in verse 9 in order to teach us verse 10. Look at 10. This is what he says about God's church. He says, and you, Christian, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So he says, in Jesus Christ, God was pleased to dwell completely. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ. And in Christ, you have what? You have been made full. You've been made full. That literally means you've been made complete in Christ. Right now, you lack nothing. Paul says, Jesus Christ is God, and you in Christ have been made the man, the woman that you're supposed to be. During our Lord's earthly ministry, Jesus the God-man, revealed this completeness in how he healed people. To the man with the shriveled hand in Matthew chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus said, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored to him, how? Completely. To the hemorrhaging woman who touched our Lord's cloak in Luke chapter 18 and she was healed instantly, Jesus said to her, Luke 8, 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. The King James renders it, has made you whole, complete. Same word. This is repeated again and again throughout the miracle accounts. When Jesus healed someone, he healed them completely. He healed them wholly. And the same is true of this spiritual healing. When you came to a saving grace, my beloved, and God made you alive and poured out the Holy Spirit upon you, he didn't do a partial work. He didn't give you half of his spirit and half of his grace, half of his forgiveness and half of his new creature. He made you complete. Jesus does not leave philosophy and traditions and the elementary principles of this world to finish his work. He finishes his work. The head of all rule and all authority in his absolute power, he transforms his people completely. And just as the miracles made people physically whole, this spiritual transformation that takes place when you are saved by grace through faith makes you spiritually whole, spiritually complete. You're made into a new creature. You were dead and you're made alive. 
you had debt against you, and that was canceled upon the cross. And you had an enemy by the name of the devil who wanted your soul in hell, and God saved you from that and overcame him. In the 19th century, there was a philosopher by the name of Henry David Thoreau. Most of you were forced to study him at some point in time in your undergraduate studies. He had a, a saying that resonated with me before I came to a saving grace. He said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And the first time I read that as a sophomore at UC Davis, I thought, that's me. That's me. I'm desperate all the time. Always looking, always searching, always trying to find that one thing that would bring satisfaction and some sense of joy that wouldn't flee, be fleeting and go away. That deep, residing, never fading, satisfaction, completion, and joy that lasts now and for eternity. And even though Thoreau did not profess Christ, he understood the heart of man. And he understood that most men live and die in desperation because they are not complete, because they do not know Christ. The only way you can have a wholeness and a completeness and a deep satisfaction in the belly of your soul, that joy that never leaves you, is if you know the person we talked about last week, the treasure, the preeminent one, you know Christ. And if you do know him, if you have been filled by him, then you truly lack nothing. And therefore, you have no incentive to look to anyone or anything else to fill you. No philosophy, no religious exercise, no Eastern mysticism to complete the work of Jesus Christ because he has completed it for you. My beloved, most of you know that I'm not a big eater, but I do enjoy Thanksgiving. And at Thanksgiving, I make it a point to enjoy the whole meal. And so I will have the turkey and the mashed potatoes and the gravy and stuffing and some more stuffing. And if it's my dad's, then another round of stuffing. And when I move myself away from the table, I am full. I do not desire to eat any more food. When I was younger, I used to be able to sleep well and I would get a good night's sleep. And when I wake up in the morning, I was refreshed and I needed no more sleep. If you are in Christ... You have been made spiritually complete. You lack, listen, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you lack nothing. You are whole right now. Right now, you are complete in Him. If you do not understand this or you do not accept it, then you do not understand or believe or accept what it is that God has done in you and done for you through Christ. So the question, I think, becomes, what exactly did he do? And what did God do in us to make us complete now? What was it? What have we been made full with? And I, and I think a question that we have to think about is, how will these qualities of completeness keep us from being taken captive? Because that's Paul's warning. Don't be taken captive because you are complete. So I, I want to do this. I want to look at the two ways, two things that Paul talks about God doing in us, transformative work in us, and then two things that God does objectively outside of us that are also transformative to us. So let's do that first. Point number two, God's work in us to make us complete. The first thing we see, the first work that Paul talks about here is that Paul makes us, Paul says that God makes us new. Look at verse 11. In him, that's Christ, 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. Now, when we use that term circumcision, even in the church, most of us think physical circumcision. Most of us go right back to Genesis chapter 17 and the circumcision of the foreskin of the male organ that God put into place as a means of establishing his chosen people. Genesis 17, 11, as a sign of the covenant made between God and Abraham. His people were separated in accordance with this particular law, the circumcision of the flesh. It was an external reminder of the, all the promises that God had made to Abraham and would then bless the generations to come. It was a circumcision by hand. But here, Paul's talking about something else. He's talking about a circumcision that is not done by man, but by God. Not a circumcision by our hands, but he calls it a circumcision of Christ, by Christ. And we know that to be a circumcision of the heart. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and following, speaking of God's people, he says, No one is a Jew, one of God's people, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Listen to this. Verse 29, Romans 2. But a Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And even though at the time of Jesus and Paul, there were many Jews who believed if they were circumcised physically, that they were guaranteed to be part of God's people, guaranteed salvation, independent of their faith, the necessity of a circumcision of the heart, of an internal transformation, has always been the principal teaching, and it was the very thing revealed in the law of circumcision itself. Think about it. The removal of the skin from the male organ of generation signified the need to put off and throw away the sin that was inherited by Adam through Adam's seed. So the very organ that God gave to man to produce life actually passed on death. And so the cutting away is the cutting away of the sins of Adam from generation to generation, symbolic of the need for a new man and a new heart and a circumcision from the inside out, not the outside in. We can even go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, the law of Moses, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So even in the law itself, back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, physical circumcision was important, but God and Moses and the law said, infinitely more important is the circumcision of your heart, that God has changed you, that God has come and he's cut away, he's cut off that old nature, that old you that resides in sin and rejoices in sin and has no interest in God or the gospel or his son, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us here that by putting it off, it's a removal of the whole body of flesh, your entire old nature cut off by God. And that takes place when you're saved by grace, not by human hands, but by the spirit of the living God. No longer are you enslaved to the desires of your sinful self. No longer are your Members, the members of your body enslaved to do that which you do not want to do. In Christ now they become what? Instruments of righteousness for the glory of God. And that's why Paul is able to call all believers in Romans chapter 6 
who have been circumcised spiritually to walk in holiness. He says this, Romans 6.13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He's saying, you've been circumcised. God came in through Christ and the Holy Spirit, and he cut away the old man. Now live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let your hands and your feet and your mouth and your ears be instruments of righteousness for the glory of God. Enough living like the dead man. Some of you will say, well, then does that mean that I will cease to sin? I mean, if he cut it away, when, when the foreskin was cut away, it was cast aside. If I've been circumcised in the heart, has my old nature been cast away completely? That means I'll never sin again. You know the answer to that. You know the answer to that. Of course, you're going to continue to sin. It does not mean that you will now be rendered sinless on earth, but one day you will be rendered sinless when you come before God and you are glorified. So the question is, well, why do we then keep sinning if the old man's been cut away? Paul told us that too in Romans chapter 7. He said in verse 22, I delight, Paul speaking of himself, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's the new man. That's the man that has been circumcised of the heart. But then he says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my flesh. Old nature, new nature, still battling. Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about it in great detail. That is why, my beloved, when you die and you come into the presence of God, When Christ comes again in glory and he raises the living and the dead and he starts handing out eternal bodies, you don't get a new nature. You know that. You've already received the new nature in Christ. You are complete in Christ. But what do you receive? You receive a new body. Why? Because you're still in the body of death. You're still in the body of flesh. And that's why you continue to sin. But that's not who you are. This body will go away. And you'll get a new body that will match your new spirit. And you will then be complete and glorified in Christ. And that's why we still sin. That's why we still sin. You won't need a new nature because your nature is complete. You say, how complete is it? Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So just as in physical circumcision, the skin is cut off and it's cast away, All of your sins, in fact, we can say all of you, when you came to a saving Christ, you you came to Christ, you entered into that tomb, and you died, and your sins died with Jesus when he was buried in that tomb. That all took place on that glorious and dreadful afternoon. When Jesus died and was laid in the tomb, you died with him. And when Jesus was raised from the tomb, to everlasting life, you were raised with him. That's why, that's why water baptism, full immersion, is so powerful. When you were baptized, I pray this was explained to you, but when you were baptized, it was symbolic of what God had already done in you. God had already taken you, and he had already plunged you into the grave with Christ, and he had taken away your sins, and then he raised you to new life in his son, And so the same happens here. When someone goes into the water, it is representative of their death. They are dying to sin in Christ, in the tomb. And then when they come out soaking wet, completely clean, they now rise with Christ again. It is my favorite ordinance. 
I love baptism because the symbolism is so powerful and so real as to what God has already done in the life of the believer. Paul said it in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk how? In the newness of life. You've been made new, my beloved, if you've been baptized by the Spirit of God, if your heart has been circumcised. You can't die again. You know that. You can't die again. How many times, let me ask you this, how many times can sin kill you? How many times can you experience a spiritual death? The answer, of course, is only once. You can't die spiritually twice. You can only die once. And that means for the believer, listen, this is an extraordinary truth. If you've been saved by grace, if your life is in Christ, then you entered into that tomb with him and you died with him. That means you can't die spiritually again. You've been made alive in him. You've been set free from the consequences of sin and death forever. And that means when Satan comes to you, when a demon comes to you and they whisper in your ear, listen, so-called saint of God, listen, Christian, I saw you last night. I know what you did. I know the sin that you committed last night. There's no way you're getting in now. You are mine. You will die. What will you say to that temptation? What will you say to that whispering in your ear? You will respond, sorry, I already died. I already died. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the answer, my beloved. You can't die twice. If you've died with Christ, you were buried with him. If you were buried with him, the sins have been washed clean. You are alive and will be forevermore, forevermore. My friends, every man will die for his sins. You say, wait a minute. Every man will die for his sins. Either you will die alone and perish, or you will die with Christ in the tomb and live with him forever. And this is the work. Look at verse 12. This is the work of God by faith. This is the work of God by faith. And that's why someone can be a Baptist or an Anabaptist or an Anna-Anabaptist, baptized three, four, five. You can be baptized a hundred times. But if you're not baptized by the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ, it will have no change in your heart. And that's why there'll be no change in your life. So many times churches will have altar calls and people will come two, three, four, ten times and they will recommit and they'll recommit. Why? Because they've never been changed. There's been no circumcision of the heart. Only the external. And so we see here that one of the first things that God does in us is he makes us new. But there's another thing, equally glorious, something else he does in us. He makes us alive. Look at verse 13 again. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. So prior to Christ coming to you and circumcising your heart, you were dead. You were a spiritually dead person through and through. You may have engaged in religion and you may have dabbled in spirituality. You may have even professed Christ and, and thought yourself a believer. But unless God makes a man alive, the man remains dead. We all start off dead because we inherit Adam's sin. 
We all continue in death because we continue in that sin. We all remain dead because we remain uncircumcised in our flesh. Paul's talking to the Colossians. These are Gentiles. They are uncircumcised people. They're outside the covenant of God. They're outside the promises of God that he made to Abraham and his generations. I imagine that's the same for most of us too. I imagine most of us did not come from a Jewish background. And so we too, at one point, were uncircumcised in the flesh. Dead because of the sin we inherited, dead because of the sin we engage in, and dead because we're outside of the promises of God. That is a miserable place. But Paul tells us that God, being rich in mercy, does something fantastic. Look at verse 13 again, the latter part. God made us alive together with him, with who? With Christ. He made us together alive with Christ, having forgiven us of, keyword, all our trespasses. Every single one. You were dead. God made you alive. And he removed all your debt. He canceled it all. He forgave it all. You were, you were born in sin, and he made you holy. You were born dead, and he made you alive. You were outside of the covenant people, and he brought you in as a son and daughter. He had to do this. God must do this with every man, every woman, and every child he's going to save because dead people cannot respond to him. They cannot, by their own will or their own power or their own choice, choose to follow and be saved by Christ. Dead people do not respond to anyone or anything. One of the hardest parts of pastoring is doing memorial services. It's doing funeral services. And I've done my share over the years. And I would say at least half of those have had an open casket. So you're standing here preaching and there is a corpse here in front of you. And I can tell you with all sincerity, in all the funerals that I've done, and all the corpse that I've preached to, not one has responded. Not one corpse has answered back. Not one corpse engages in the songs. Not one corpse actually hears the words of the family talking about their life and sits up and says, yes, I agree. And when everybody leaves the room, only the corpse stays. Dead people do not respond to anyone or anything. And that's why it's absolutely necessary for God to come to us in our deadness and make us alive. We call this regeneration. Being born again by the Spirit of Christ. And there are no exceptions to this, my beloved. You can't be born into the faith. You must be made alive by God. You can't be born a Christian because your parents are Christian. You must be made alive by God. No exceptions to the rule. We all start off old and need to be made new. We all start off dead and need to be made alive by grace through faith in Christ. So these two, if true, are extraordinary transformative movements by the living God in the life of the believer. He has made you new and he has made you live. He's come into the inside of your heart. He's cut away the old man and he's brought death to life. Extraordinary. But you have to ask, how does he do this? Most people think, well, it's because he's God. And, and he's God so he can do whatever he wants. That is not a right theological answer. He is God, but he cannot do whatever he wants. He must live in accordance with his own character and his own law. And according to his law, all sinners must die. So how do we, how do we fix this? 
Point number three, God's work for us to complete us. So he does this great work in us, making us new, making us alive, and then he must do this great work for us to bring this about, this completion that we have in the Lord. Being a good and just God, listen, he cannot simply snap his fingers and make uncircumcised lawbreakers new. He cannot simply wave his hands and make people who are spiritually dead now spiritually alive. He must do something. He must do something utterly profound and absolutely powerful in order to bring us into his presence as a living, holy people. And the first thing that Paul says he does for us is that he cancels our debt. He cancels the record of our debt of sin. Look at verse 13 again. And you who were past tense dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins. So the operative question is, how did he do that? How does a holy God forgive sins and then make someone alive and still remain just? How does he do that? The answer is in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, how? By nailing it to the cross. My beloved, you got to memorize verse 14. It has to be a verse that you have in your arsenal. It is one of the most powerful verses that you will have to counter the philosophies and the human traditions and the vain deceits that say to you, Christ is not sufficient. This record of debt is your whole life. You know that. It's not just the bad things you remember you did. It's not just the good things you did for your own glory. It's your entire life before a saving grace in Jesus Christ. That is the record of debt because every single thing you did was dishonoring to God. Every thought you've ever had since you were a child that was not pleasing to God stands against you. Every word you have ever uttered that God himself would not say Every word stands against you. Everything you've ever done, every relationship you've ever had that was not perfectly aligned with God's will for your life stands against you. Every good deed you did for your own glory, every kind word you said for your own exaltation, and every inclination of your heart that did not at every moment of every day desire God's glory first stands against you. That's why James can say in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of them all. This record of debt, if understood rightly, is utterly terrifying. It is your sinful, rebellious, uncircumcised life placed before a holy God on judgment day to be condemned, to be rightly judged. Every transgression every sin written down, documented. This record, it literally is that which is written so that on the day of judgment, the books are opened and for those who are not in Christ, every word, every thought, every action, their whole life laid out, terrifying, horrible. Imagine for a moment, if you would, that you, let's say you lived a life of total lawlessness. You, you've lied for as long as you can remember. 
you have been stealing for as long as you can remember. You have committed adultery. You've committed murder. You've committed rape. You've done all these things. This is your life. And at some point in time, you finally get caught. And you're arrested and you're brought before a judge. And you know. You say, I, I know how I lived. I know what I deserve. This judge is going to condemn me not to life in prison. I'm going to be sentenced to death. I deserve to die. But you come into this courtroom, and to your amazement, the judge lifts up the written document, the record of your crimes, all the charges against you, and he tears it up into a thousand pieces. He exonerates you, not because you deserve to be set free, but because the debt had already, in some way, been paid. And you find out that a good friend of yours came to the judge before you did, and he acknowledged your guilt before the judge, before you did. And he said to the judge, let me pay in my friend's place. Let me die instead of my friend. And therefore, the charges have been torn up and you are set free, not because of your goodness, because of the payment of your friend. Justice was rendered and therefore you can be granted mercy and grace. My beloved, in the eyes of God, According to his perfect law, you have lived a life of lawlessness. According to the word of God, you have been a lying, stealing, adulterer, murderer, rapist. You say, well, I've never done those things physically. Jesus revealed that even if you haven't done it physically, you've done it in your own heart. You're guilty. This life of lawlessness. So, we would come before the judge and experience judgment if God had not what? If he had not nailed your crimes to the cross of his son. He took the complete record of your debt and he put it upon the cross, revealing to us what? That Jesus Christ bore the full punishment that you rightly deserved for a total life of lawlessness. That your debt was set aside. It literally says canceled. It was removed. The Greek's emphatic here. It means not only was it canceled, but it was done away with. It doesn't exist anymore. If you are in Christ, that debt is no longer in place. It will not be read by anyone and certainly not held against you. God is able to do this. He's able to take your record of debt and tear it into a thousand pieces just like the human judge because all the punishment that you rightly deserved was received by Christ upon the cross. That's why the record of debt is there. It's there on the cross because that's where Christ received the condemnation and the punishment. And therefore God is able to, he's able to remain just. He's able to take uncircumcised lawless people and make them new. He's able to take dead sinners and make us alive because he took the punishment and placed it upon Christ and so he remains just and now he can be merciful. He remains holy and now he can pour out grace, grace upon grace. We sang it today, amazing grace that God pours out on his people again and again and again. On the cross, most of you know that it was common for the Romans to put a placard at the top that would describe the crime committed by the person who was crucified. Our Savior had a sign above him. Matthew 27, 37, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That was his only crime. 
And yet it wasn't even a crime because he was. And so he was, in fact, truly innocent. But there, there was another record of debt that we could not see. We know because God has revealed that to us. But upon that cross, at that moment, your record of debt, the list of sins upon sins, that every single person that would be saved by grace was nailed to that cross on that glorious day as well. And through our Lord's sufferings, they were paid in full. So Christ is able to say, Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. If you're in Christ, they were up there. Before you were ever born, your sins were being crucified. Before you ever did anything right or wrong, the record of your debt had already been paid for by Christ upon the cross by his precious, perfect, sinless blood. And that means when Christ died, your sins died with him. And when he rose from the dead, the sins remained dead. They remained there never to rise again. And so God was able to cancel the debt and remain holy, making you complete because Christ bore the judgment. So Christ, God makes us new. He makes us alive. He forgives us of our sins. And I'll give you one more thing that he had to do for us to make us complete. And then we'll close. He destroyed our enemy once and for all. Do not read by verse 15 quickly. Look at verse 15. The second thing that he did for us in order to make us complete He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. Remember the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve have sinned. They have already fallen. God is prescribing the punishment. And yet He gives them a glimmer of hope, of reconciliation. He says in Genesis 3.15, The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, Christ to Satan, and you shall bruise, I'm sorry, Satan to, uh, to, shall bruise your head. This is Christ crushing Satan, and you shall bruise his heel, Satan to Christ. This is what took place upon the cross. Satan bruised the Savior, but upon the cross, the Savior crushes the serpent's head. He renders impotent, powerless the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities that Paul had been talking about. That's why we're told in Hebrews 2.14, through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And not only does it say that he disarmed them, that he put them to open shame. Public, it literally says, in public humiliation through the cross, Jesus destroyed Satan and his dominions, and all those who would follow. Now the Colossians, they would understand verse 15 far better than us. It was not uncommon for Roman emperors or the Roman Senate to allow a victorious general to come into the city. And he would come in with his legion of armies. He would come in with all those taken captive, the the prisoners of war, and all the spoils, and those who had been set free. And so they would have understood this great general's accomplishment in the context of Christ defeating Satan. A public procession. You say, well, where are we in that? 
our Lord, the great warrior, the great victor, has captured you for himself. You were a prisoner of war. That's why Paul says in verse 8, do not be taken captive as a prisoner of war. You were a prisoner of war. Christ saved you. And then he brought you into himself. And this glorious procession, we're told in 2 Corinthians 2.14, this is what we hear about our general, that God in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. You're going to be part of that glorious march. You are already if you're in Christ. But for Satan and his demons and all those who refuse to be saved, it'll be a march of destruction. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation 20 from the Apostle John. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, listen, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. That work was accomplished upon the cross. One of the lies that were perpetuated by the Judaizers at that time, these evil spirits still had all this power over Christian believers. And the only way, they said, that you can escape being trapped by them is to follow their religious rules and regulation and asceticism and mysticism and philosophies. Paul paints a very different picture for us here. Paul says, on the cross, Satan and his demons, they were disarmed and put to shame. And therefore, all who are in Christ participate in that great victory. Already victorious. This is the climax of the passage, and it takes us right back to verse 8. That's why I couldn't break it up. Look at verse 8 again. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive, a hostage, a prisoner of war. And then he ends in verse 15, talking about this grand, triumphant procession of Christ and all those he saved by grace and all those that he will punish eternally. And so Paul's saying, and I say to you, my beloved, listen, Don't become a prisoner of war. Don't deviate from the clear gospel message that you've already heard. Do not turn to the left or the right. Keep your focus upon Jesus Christ upon the cross. The question would be, do you want to be taken captive like Satan and the demons and all who rebel and be part of the procession as one to be destroyed? Or do you want to know Christ now and forever? and be part of that grand, triumphant procession into the kingdom of heaven as someone who was captured and has been set free by the Savior, as someone who was outside and has been brought all the way in. All right, let me close. Jesus completed you if you're in him. If you're in Christ, you are a new creature. You've been made new because he's circumcised your heart. You went into the baptism with him in death and you've been made alive with him. If that is true, my beloved, then every day you should strive to live as the new creature that you are. That means you should strive to have your members submit to the righteousness of God. You should press hard to put to death the old man that still rears this head against you. You should see one another within the church as those who are new as well. Paul tells us something fascinating in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, from now on, 
we regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My beloved, I fear that we still relate so much to one another as old creatures. So critical, so condemning, so not loving. We're commanded here. And it's good for us to see each other as a new creature in Christ and relate to each other as such with great patience, with great humility, which much long-suffering. My beloved, if you were dead and made alive in Christ, then your life should look different. The passage that I had read from Colossians chapter 3, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, you've been made alive, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You've been made new and you've been made alive. Where is your heart? Where is your mind? Is it fixed here? Is it on earthly things? School, work, home, finances, car, children, jobs, all important things. But if that's where your heart and mind, if they are fixed there, then you're not living as though you're alive. Dead people fix their eyes and their sights on those things. Dead people outside of Christ are worried about school and work and finances and retirement. And if you too live like that, then you live no different than the world. You live as though you are still dead when in fact you are alive. Paul tells us to fix our hope on what? Completely upon the grace to be brought to us, the revelation of Jesus Christ. All your hope, all your life on Him. Heart and mind upon Heavenly things, the gospel of grace, Jesus Christ is your Savior, the making of disciples, the expansion of His kingdom. Do these occupy you? If you're alive, they will. If your record of debt has truly been canceled and all of your sins have been nailed to the cross, then I beseech you in the name of Christ to live like a free person. Live as a forgiven person. Still, within the context of this church, so many people take their sin and they bear it in guilt and shame and dishonor. If you have sinned against God, then repent of those sins, turn from them. He is faithful to cleanse you and wash you of all unrighteousness. Be rightly convicted, rightly repent, rightly turn, and then walk in righteousness. Your sins have been paid for. You don't have to act guilty. You don't have to play the part of the despondent, discouraged, depressed person because of your sin. God hates that. You keep bringing it back up. He says, I nailed it on the cross. You said, what about this sin? He said, I took care of it 2,000 years ago. Before you were ever born, I paid for that sin. And lastly, my beloved, if Satan and the demons have been defeated by Christ, you have no enemy. You have no enemy. I'm not saying that, that he's not going to continue to tempt you. And you're probably thinking, I have plenty of enemies here on earth. Maybe you do. But you have no real enemy. Because the real enemy is an enemy of your soul who had the power to keep you in hell forever. That enemy has been destroyed by Christ upon the cross. You are victorious. And if you're victorious in Christ and your ultimate enemy has been destroyed, then we must as a people live as a victorious people. 
bold in our proclamation of the gospel, fervent in our prayer, longing to share this truth with the lost that they too might be set free from their captivity. We don't, we want the lost here to join in the glorious procession, not as those prisoners of war to be condemned to hell, but as those who have been saved by grace. Don't we want that too? We must live victorious lives in Christ. So you are complete if you are in him. You are a new creature. You have been made alive. You have been forgiven completely and you have been set free. If that's true, you cannot be the same. You cannot leave here the same as when you came in and meditate upon these truths because this is real. So I will pray that God will give us a deep understanding of these truths. So that when we think to ourselves, I'm a new creature, the old man is dead, I will live as a new creation in Christ. When I say to myself, I'm alive, I was dead, but I'm alive, we will live as living people. When I think, even for a moment, that all my sins, the record of debt, completely torn up, paid for in whole, I'm not guilty. I will live in that fashion. And when I know that my enemy has been destroyed and I am free, I will live freely. My beloved, let's pray that we, as members of Cambrian Park Baptist Church, will live like that. And let's pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Let's pray that these truths that were proclaimed here would resonate deeply with all those who have been saved by grace this very hour. Let's pray. Father, we must seek forgiveness first for our lives being lived not as new people but as old people, not as those who are alive but those who are dead. We live as though that record of debt still stands against us. We live as though Satan still reigns and has power over us. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our lack of understanding. Forgive us for our amnesia. Forgive us for not being rightly stirred in the Spirit to be a holy people who live profoundly victorious lives, free in Christ. Father, we cannot begin to thank you enough for this great work that you've done in us. That when we were dead in our sins, our transgressions, when we were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh, you came to us. You breathe life into us. You made us a new creature. You cut away the old man. You made us alive. This is your work. And if that wasn't enough, Father, then you took care of the ultimate enemy. You destroyed sin upon the cross by punishing your son, and you destroyed Satan and the demons forever. We stand in awe of the work that you've done in us and for us. Father, take that awe and that wonder and make it transformative in nature. Change us from the inside out. We don't want to participate in the external circumcision. We don't want to be people on the outside who profess Christ but have no power on the inside. We want to be people truly changed by you for your glory. We pray you would do all that, Lord, here in this place and in your glorious church throughout the world so that Christ and his name and the gospel of grace would be magnified and displayed so that millions upon millions will hear, repent, and believe and join in the glorious procession of the saints forever. 
Do this work, I pray, through this little church. In Christ's holy name, amen.